Good morning, church. Good to see you today. Grab your Bibles and turn to um, Re- Revelation chapter 4. And we are uh, ten, <clears throat> 10 messages. As of this message, we're 10 messages into Revelation. And I want us to pause for a second and consider the top uh, five purposes for the Revelation, asking the question, why did God give us this book? You know, why do we have this period at the end of the sentence uh, of the Bible, so to speak? Um, but uh, top five purposes for the Revelation, uh, number five, uh, exalt Jesus Christ. That seems like a given, amen? Uh, the purpose of Revelation is to exalt Jesus Christ. Uh, number four would be to reveal the future, and I put the future in quotes because it's not, what we're, what we're seeing in Revelation is not future, it's future for us, but it's not future, okay? We're going to get into that. Everybody okay with that? Little little teaser there? It's not exactly future. Uh, third uh, pur- purpose for Revelation, third one is to encourage persecuted believers to endure. And as you, as you think about the main reason why this book would have been written in the first century when it was and delivered to the churches so that they could read it, they were under intense persecution. And so for them to read about the sovereignty of God and how things uh, were going to play out was so encouraging to them because it was so difficult for them to live their Christian life. And so that's the main purpose of Revelation. And then secondly, to challenge spiritual rebellion. We saw that in the letters that we studied in chapters two and three, uh, working through those letters and saw how Jesus was just challenging rebellion in the church. Obviously, that's a purpose of Revelation. And the, the number one reason, number one purpose for the book of Revelation, blow our minds. That makes sense? Blow our minds. And in Revelation 4 or 5, which we're getting into now over these next two Sundays, these two chapters are going to accelerate the mind-blowing imagery that we've already seen in this book. We haven't already been so overwhelmed by the awesome descriptions that we had in chapter 1. Well, that now is just going to get more and more staggering for us, and beyond chapter 5, uh, more so as we move in uh, to the depths of this book. The vision of eternity that John receives <clears throat> is something that is intended to alter the fabric of our lives. So this, this book isn't just for interest's sake. It's not just to, you know, so we can study it and know a few more things about the future. You know, it, it's, it's, it's much more than that. It's not about adding to our knowledge. It's about altering our lives. It's a message that should inspire us and it should overwhelm us and and it should humble us and it should encourage us as believers. And it should do all of those things no matter what's going on in our lives right now. In fact, I read this, uh, Eugene Boring said this, quoted by Fanning in his commentary, John's vision of the scene in heaven gives the appropriate perspective from which to view and make sense of what is happening on earth. The earth is a mess. I don't know if you noticed. The earth is an absolute mess, and someone needs to make sense of it. Well, the book of Revelation does that. It makes sense of it. This scene, and he's speaking specifically here of Revelation 4 and 5, this scene is the theological fountainhead and anchor point for the whole document. So, so these, this is the hinge point for all of the revelation, everything else we're going to see next. That's why these verses are so, these, these chapters are so critical uh, for us. And so let's start with this. Let's start with chapter four this week, chapter five next week. I'm going to read chapter four right now, and then we're going to get into this. The apostle John receiving this vision says, 
After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is, and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will, they existed and were created. Amen? Amen. Awesome passage of Scripture. This vision of worship in eternity is what we're going to see here. This vision of worship in eternity, in fact, inspires us with the hope that we need. That's what we see first. There's a, there's, there, there is what appears to be a timestamp right here in verse 1 as we get into this. Um, after this, John says, after this refers to a... A sequence of observations, it's not necessarily about time. It's a, it's a literary technique to communicate the things that he's seeing in a certain order. In other words, this is how the whole thing played out as I saw it. And he says, after this, after the last things I saw, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. This door is a symbol of hope. The door is open. It's not locked. He can see through it. What's, what he can see through it is awesome. It's meant to be communicated to us who are in a difficult situation, those original recipients. This is a door of hope. And the first voice, which I'd heard speaking to me like a trumpet, referring back to chapter 1, verse 10, and this is Jesus who's speaking. His voice is like the trumpet. And he said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place that phrase again, after this, in the sequence of things that are taking place as I'm showing them to you. These are the things I'm going to show you after the last things that I showed you. Now, I'd like us to understand, as best we can, this concept of time as it's being discussed here. A time and non-time. We are in time, and the pictures that we're seeing are in non-time. And we need to understand as best we can how this all plays out. And I'm going to come back to this again. I've got this illustration I've been thinking about for a long time that I'm going to use when we get to chapter 6. 
And I think it's going to help us to understand this idea of time and non-time. But I'm not getting to chapter 6 until the fall. So you got you to stick with me the whole time. you gotta, you got to come back. you got to be here. We'll get to it in, in September. This is like the little teaser at the, the cliffhanger. It's the cliffhanger at the end of the season finale. you got to come back for next season to find out what the cool illustration in Revelation 6 is. Who's in? Who's in for Revelation 6? All right, thanks. Um, I'm going to hold you to that. And so we're trying to understand time a little bit here, but if you're familiar at all, just to understand how Revelation is laid out for us, how many people are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis? Okay, you're familiar with these, with these books, and you'll, you'll know that there are seven books in the series. Uh, C.S. Lewis did not set out to write seven books. In fact, he wrote one book. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he thought, that's the only book I'm going to write. And then he was thinking about it a little more, and he said, you know what, I could add to this story. So he wrote another book, and he thought that was going to be the last one. He did that six times and, and, and until he had seven books, because that makes a really nice box set. And so he had seven books in the Chronicles of Narnia. Now, now, the thing about the Chronicles of Narnia is this. He wrote The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, but then some of the other stories go back before that time. And so he's moving, as he tells the story, back and forth in time in order to fill in the whole story. Last week, I ran this little survey because we, I actually have two box sets. I have one that's in the original author order that starts with Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I have a second one that was published more recently that puts it in, ooh, hard to say, chronological order, reordered, and all the new published sets are all in chronological order. So Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe doesn't come till later in the set. And, and by the way, so the, some people just want to read it. I want to read it chronologically. The problem is there's some details in Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe that you need if you're going to read those other stories. And so if you're reading it chronologically, you're, you're wrong. You're just it's the wrong way. The survey I ran was a dead heat. Half of you like it chronologically, half of you like it in the author's uh, order, uh, but you should be reading it the way the author wrote it. You should be reading it just like we're reading the book of Revelation here in the order in which the Holy Spirit intended for us to read it. Because I'm telling you all of this right now, Revelation is similarly constructed. We can take the first three chapters, which we've just studied through. We take those first three chapters. We understand that we have this initial vision, and then we have the, the seven letters, and they were written in time at the end of the first century by John. We can place them on our timeline. We know that happened 1,900 years ago. So it fits into the historical narrative that we've experienced. John wrote seven letters to seven real churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. He knew people in those churches. People in those churches knew John. And so we, so we can understand how that all fits. But when we come to Revelation 4 and 5, we're given a glimpse into something altogether different than that. We're given a glimpse into something that's actually happening. And yet for us... As we read it, we go, well, that, but that hasn't happened yet because we're here on the timeline and we're 1,900 years down the road. It's, it's happening. It happened. We're reading it almost as history because John saw it. It happened. It's happening. It's going to happen. Everybody still with me? This is, this is how it gets when you're talking to time-bound human beings about matters of time and non-time. Now, in Star Wars terms, can I talk about it in Star Wars terms? For all the Star Wars people here, in Revelation 4 and 5, we're watching Return of the Jedi. That's, that's episode 6. We've, we fast forward in, in 4 and 5 all the way to Return of the Jedi, 
And, and so we know the end. We know how it's all going to end. But the reality is that there's five prequels we haven't seen that tell all of the story that happened before that. The prequels, Star Wars terms, the prequels are, are Revelation 6 through 20. What we're seeing in Revelation 4 and 5 is the end of the end. We're being told the end of the story right now in these two chapters. Okay, in, in, in Lord of the Rings terms. <laughs> I don't need to do you, you, Everybody got it? I could go on and on. Revelation 4 and 5 is the end of the end. It is eternity fulfilled and accomplished. And John got a glimpse of it through the door and he shared it with us. Now, why is that important? Because that glimpse of the end of the end inspires us with hope, the hope that we need to endure all things now. In other words, we're saying, like as we look through the door and we see what John is seeing, we go, well, if that's how it plays out, then I can endure anything here and now. I can make it through any difficulty in life if that's the way it ends. So what did John see? Verse two. He says, at once I was in the spirit. So he's in, a, he was, he's in this spirit before. He's, he was in a trance-like state previously. He's there again. In between that, he was dictated these letters. He says, and behold, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the spirit and behold, through that door, he saw a throne in heaven with one seated on the throne. He doesn't tell us anything about the throne. He doesn't tell us anything about the one who's seated on the throne. He doesn't tell us who it is. He's, he's in a literary sense, he's building the tension. He's creating suspense for us. Though I suspect that as a reader, you're hearing this and you're going, well, I know who's on the throne, but he doesn't tell us immediately. The scene is, is conveying hope for us so that whatever we're facing in life, He's telling us this is how it's going to end for believers. I saw this quote from George Eldon Ladd, um, one of the commentators I'm reading for this series, and, and I just I was so struck by it. I put it on social media this week already. However fearful or uncontrolled the forces of evil on earth may seem to be, and man, they seem out of control right now, don't they? They cannot annul or eclipse the greater fact that behind the scenes, God is on his throne governing the universe. Do you believe that? Our world is irreparably broken. There are no solutions beyond Christ. Forces well beyond the grasp of ordinary men and women like you and me are speeding us toward the abyss the last two and a half years have shown us that. We have felt in the history, uh, in anybody's memory here, I would just say it this way, in anybody's memory here, we have never felt collectively more out of control than we did over the last two and a half years. And for sure, our government's putting on a strong face, but they had no clue. Not just our government, every government in the world had no clue. There are forces at work here that transcend any human entity. 
And we have, as Christians, we have this gospel cynicism of politics and power. And I would just say that cynicism rooted in the gospel is well-placed. This world's broken. It's not getting fixed. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is through a door standing open in heaven. And that is our only hope. And access is granted simply by faith in Jesus Christ. And and my heart is that everyone hearing my voice right now in this room, everyone watching the live stream, anyone watching on demand, that you would have this hope in Jesus Christ as well. Because there are no other solutions in the world. Secondly, let's look at this. See that the the vision of of worship in heaven that we're seeing through this door, it overwhelms us. Now we're getting to the mind-blowing part. It overwhelms us with his awesome power. I've used this quote so many times before. Um, One of my old professors, David Barker, uh, would say often, um, he's a professor of Old Testament, uh, the, the apocalyptic literature of the Bible should wash over us like a wave of the sea. And, and, and by that, he meant, but he was a professor with a doctorate, so he had to say it in fancy ways. By that, he meant, it should blow your mind. By that, he meant, we should not be approaching the apocalyptic literature and try to discern every little detail, and this symbol means this. There should be a lot of things that we read and go, like, I have no clue what that is. But it seems awesome to me. That's what Barker means by that. And what John sees here is consistent with what Ezekiel saw. And if you've read Ezekiel, you know that was a crazy vision that he received. Those visions in Ezekiel chapter 1, John wrote verse 3, he he who sat there, describing now the one on the throne, who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. God and the throne are not exactly described here. He doesn't go into the details of it, but he's grasping at precious stones, images that he has to try and explain what he's seeing. He says, around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So the word rainbow here could mean like a partial or full arc around the throne, but it's single-hued, so it's not like a rainbow we would see with the multicolors. It's described as an emerald, so presumably it's green, has a green hue to it. And in fact, it's it's more, the word rainbow here can mean more of a halo, more of a light that shone all the way around it. Now, this is where it becomes difficult for us because we are human beings. We live on a timeline that is linear and we move about in, in spatially on linear surfaces. We move about in rooms, on walkways, up and down stairs, that kind of thing. We think spatially in terms of flat surfaces. We think of time in terms of a, of a single strand that just goes off into the future. We think of a throne room, which is what is here in the vision in, in these two chapters. We think of a throne room in terms of Buckingham Palace, a massive room with two large doors that open up at one end and you walk in and it's largely empty of furniture. And at the very far end is a raised area with ornate backgrounds to it and a single throne that the sovereign would sit on. We think linear. We have to walk in the room. We go through doors. We walk along the floor. It's up there in front of us. 
But I read this and I read Ezekiel 1 and I go, I, I'm not sure it's linear. I'm not, I'm not seeing any flat surfaces. I'm thinking more of a three-dimensional image of, of a three-dimensional throne room. Not, not even, forget linear, not even circular, but spherical. All around. In terms of the throne of God, it's three-dimensional. The rainbow, the halo is not an arc over it but light emanating from all sides of it, spherically emanating out. Verse 4, around or orbiting the throne were 24 other thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Some think this is the uh, representative of the 12 uh, patriarchs, or it was, it is the 12 patriarchs of the tribes of Israel or the 12 and the 12 apostles of, of the church. And certainly I love the idea of the merging of Israel and the church into the one people of God. But these are not redeemed humans, but instead 24 powerful angelic beings who may in fact represent these tribes and these apostles. And they're going to come into view again when we get to chapter 7. So let me pause for a second and just ask you the question. Are you overwhelmed yet by any of this? Are you beginning to see it? Because i got more to get us a little further along. Verse 5. From this throne at the center of this picture... Come flashes of lightning out from the throne, rumblings, voices, sounds coming out of the throne, peals of thunder. Think about the most awesome fireworks show you ever went to. Fireworks that light the sky, that rattle windows, that cause the crowd to ooh in awe. Think about the best concert, outdoor concert you went to or stadium concert you went to and the thumping that was in your chest. Better than any live concert you've ever been to. Heavenly worship as it's depicted here is loud and it's bright and it's impossible to ignore. Impossible to take for granted. Impossible for us just to sit there with arms folded and legs crossed. can't ignore such worship. Can't be reserved with such worship. And there's pyrotechnics. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. As we've seen already in Revelation, this is a reference to the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Verse 6, and before the throne, there, there was, as it were, he's trying to describe this as best he can, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal to round out the beauty of everything that John was seeing. I mean, everyone knows, everyone knows, and everyone loves a water view, right? Just watch HGTV, I'm telling you, everybody wants a water view. Okay, well, that's the million dollar view. 
You got the ocean or a lakefront in front of you. And so we have this beautiful picture of, as it were, not quite a lake, not quite an ocean, not a sea, but something an awful lot like it that made John think that way. Now, whatever else we might see in all of this fantastical description, the thing we should see is that in order to have this, there there has to be tremendous power behind it. And we should be overwhelmed by the awesomeness of the scene, of trying to understand it, and of realizing the power that it would be needed to sustain and create it. I was thinking about other awesome things that we see and how we could possibly compare to the scene that's described here in, in Revelation 4 and 5. And this past week, of course, in the UK, they've been celebrating the Queen's Jubilee, her 70th year on the throne. And, um, and, it, and it's celebrated in a massive way, millions of people. The kingdom has all but shut down in order to commemorate her 70 years on the throne with fly paths of airplanes, 70 airplanes, other airplanes, all kinds of airplanes, aircraft, including some that's, that actually numbered out the number 70 to commemorate her 70 years on the throne. It was awesome. And so many people showed up to celebrate Her Majesty the Queen, musicians, on stage, trooping of the colors, the kingdom, the empire stopped to acknowledge the sovereign God save the queen. But when you look at the awesomeness of that entire celebration, compared to what we just read in Revelation 4, this is like a child's backyard birthday party with pin to tail on the donkey. Are we allowed to play that anymore? Or is that offensive to donkeys? I, I don't... What I really appreciated about the Queen's Jubilee was how the whole thing was just brought down to real life level by none other than Prince Louis. He's my hero. (laughs) The star of the show, the one who grounded everyone and let us know exactly what all of this is really about. Uh, Prince Louis is the poster child for for third children in every family. Third children whose, whose motto is uh, make life fun again. And uh, so, uh, so grateful for Louis. In fact, I think I have decided that I'm going to capture this picture and frame it and put it in my office because it says so much. I love the, the, the regalness of Her Majesty, but Louis just saying what everyone was thinking. So now listen, we're contrasting two incredible scenes, but one that pales in contrast to the other. As we dive into Revelation, commentators make so much of what we're seeing here to try and assign, as I said, interpretations for all of it. Every specific element coming up with various explanations for every detail. But in doing so, the reader can become so fixated on the minutia and and miss the point of the vision. Miss miss the message that, that Jesus is communicating to his church. Overwhelm us with who you are, God, so that we are not overwhelmed by anything else. Overwhelm us with who you are, so we are not overwhelmed by anything else. I mean, whatever circumstances are overpowering you in your life right now, 
should melt away at the thought of being in the throne room of God. Just getting a glimpse through the door is enough. Not that the circumstances themselves, you know, the circumstances themselves are going to be erased. They're still going to be there. The hardship will still be there, but it is that we can steal away moments of unhindered worship that transcend anything we're actually going through. Whatever's crushing us in the moment will, will be as nothing because we've been transported to the throne room of God. We know the end of the end. In fact, part of the reason God has us gather like this every single week and why we should never neglect the assembling of ourselves together is because we need this. We need our worship team to usher us into the presence of God every week so we can push aside whatever it is that's overwhelming us the other six days of the week. We need to be in the room together to see each other's faces, to warmly greet one another, to share these stories together. We need to hear the word of God together so that we can be mutually encouraged in the things we're hearing from the, from the, from the Lord himself. We need this. The small, just a little taste of what it's going to be like to be in that throne room on that day. Our difficulties do not own us. And we have to remind ourselves regularly that all of our trials have an expiry date. Every one of them. And for some, you're thinking very personally about things that you're going through in your life. And I know a lot of it. I know a lot of what you're going through. I read your prayer requests. I lift those up before the Lord. Many of you suffering terribly in these days and struggling with so many different things in your lives. For others, it's, 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 it's what we're facing together in the world. It's the ongoing war in Ukraine and the effect that that has had on the entire global community, but especially to those Ukrainians in the country and around the world. Those who live in Central and Eastern Europe who are facing this right on their doorstep. the mass shootings in the U.S. Again this past weekend. Again, four dead in the city of Chicago with a mass shooting. There's no answers for these things. Think about the church attacks in Nigeria. And again, radicals mostly in the north of the country going into places of worship and slaughtering those who are worshiping. The world throws its hands up in despair. What's been happening in Nigeria has been happening there for years. Mass shootings are nothing new, sadly. Decade after decade after decade of us hearing these stories over and over again. If you've seen a full list of just school shootings, forget about grocery stores and churches and places of work and every other place. There's no answer. The country doesn't have the will to be, able, to be able to actually deal with these things. The world throws its hands up in despair. 
because they have no answers. But these earthly sorrows and burdens will not overwhelm those who have hope in Jesus Christ. As we know the end of the end. We've seen through the door. We know that Christ gave his life on the cross. We know that he was raised to new life, raised from the tomb to give us this hope and to demonstrate his power to us. We look to the one who has the appearance of Jasper and Cornelian. We know that his power triumphs over every earthly power. It triumphs over the evil that they knowingly and unknowingly perpetuate in this world. Our hope is in him. He overwhelms us with his awesome power. We find our joy and satisfaction in him alone. We're not looking to this world for solutions. We know that it's broken. It's a mess beyond anyone's ability to repair it. Look at this third. The vision of worship in eternity also humbles us in light of his holy, holy, holiness. Now this is a rerun, if you will, of two key Old Testament passages, two prophets who received the same vision, a very similar vision of eternity. I'll give you those references in a moment. Verse 6, though, partway through and around the throne, on each side of the throne, again, we're thinking spherically, on every side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Very similar creatures to what we see in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 3, and especially in Ezekiel chapter 1, 5 through 14. Now, the first of these is like a lion. The second one, this is verse 7, is like an ox. The third is, has the face of a man. The fourth, uh, like an eagle in flight. These are powerful, majestic, enigmatic, angelic, powerful, angelic beings created to worship and adore the Lord. Verse 8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. I mean, I'm thinking of some adjectives that I could use to describe these incredible creatures that we're, that we're reading about here. And I, I think, you know, wild and, and weird and wonderful and, and wacky. I can only think of W adjectives today. I mean, I don't know what to make of these, but what we know for certain about these four living creatures is that they are an exalted higher order of angelic beings who, as one commentator notes, this is Grant Osborne says, they have three purposes, and we're going to see these purposes for these four living creatures play out throughout the rest of Revelation. First of all, these four living creatures uh, lead worship. We see that here in chapter 4. We'll see it in chapter 5 again, and we'll see it in chapter 19. These four living creatures also stand as watchmen in heaven, in the throne room. We see that, we'll see that in chapter 5, also in chapter 7 and chapter 14. They also, thirdly, they take the lead in, in the pouring out of divine judgment. 
on the world. And we're going to see that in chapter 6 and chapter 15. And I say all of that because it's, it's, it's right here in chapters 4 and 5 where we're setting all of this up again for everything else that's going to happen in the rest of Revelation. Now notice, verse 8, partway through, day and night, they never cease to say. And this is an echo now of what we would read. If you, if you go to Isaiah, Isaiah 6, 1 to 3, this is what you're going to see. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the Lord Sabaoth, the, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one. And it adds in here, who was and is and is to come. Again, breaking us out of our constraints concerning time. And so the refrain of heaven, when you think about this refrain that's being spoken in Isaiah 6 and here in Revelation 4, this refrain of heaven is the exaltation of the holiness of God. The threefold repetition is for emphasis so we don't miss the point. God is not holy. God is not holy, holy. God is holy, holy, holy. Don't miss the point. Now think about that because if this is the refrain of heaven, if holiness is the thing that is most dominant about God's characteristic, if this is the thing that is exalted and sung about in heaven, then we need to carefully consider this. We down here on the timeline, working out our lives and seeking to live for Jesus, we tend to think of other characteristics first. How would you describe God? We would describe God as loving. We would use words like mercy and grace toward God because those are things that right now still grappling with sin, we so desperately need those three things. We need his love. We need his grace. We need his mercy toward us. But all of that, when you think about love, grace, mercy of God, all of that, is merely the means by which we are made holy so that we are deemed worthy to look through that door and to be with our God. I'm speaking to Christians. The book of Revelation is written to Christians to remind us that when, he, when we give ourselves, a, when we emphasize, for example, the love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, which are awesome things to emphasize, but when we emphasize those to the exclusion of the holiness of God, we're missing the core of who he is. When we give ourselves a pass, for example, on matters of holy living, we make excuses for ourselves for not dealing with the sin that's in our lives. Or as Romans 6.12 says, that, that, that we allow sin to continue to reign in our mortal bodies. When we do that, we fail to rec recognize the holy, holy, holiness of our God. the preeminent characteristic of who he is and the focal point of our worship in, in the eternal throne room. And that's why Romans, Romans 8, uh, 12, we need to put sin to death. We need to be dealing with sin in our lives. 
So back to verse 9 here in this, this scene, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the four living creatures are leading the worship. Whenever they do, verse 10, the 24 elders join the angelic praise as they fall down before him in this picture of, of contrition, of humble adoration of the Lord before the awesomeness of the sovereign God, before the one who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. That's a phrase out of Daniel, by the way. And they cast their crowns before him. These are not crowns, they're not ruling crowns. They're not like the kind of crown that a sovereign would wear, that, that her majesty would wear. These are the laurel wreath crowns that would be given to the victor at the games. They have the victory. God has given them the victory. And yet they take those crowns and symbolically put them before the Lord because he's the one who gave them the victory. question, because this is an incredible scene. But the question I have now is if, if worship in heaven by powerful angelic beings who know far more about God than you and I do, by the way, if their worship causes them to humbly bow, should not our worship humble us? Should we not be humble? When we come to worship, do we not also fall down before him? Should we not also lay our victories down before him? Are we not sinners? Have we not been saved at great cost? Do we not owe him our very existence and our very lives? His holy, holy, holiness leaves us knowing that he is other. He is transcendent. We are not like him. He is perfect and sinless. Now the challenge here is that you can emphasize the holiness of God and then feel so discouraged that you're not like him. But far from his holiness creating a hopeless fear of God, knowing we could never satisfy his righteous demands, it instead points us to the reality that we have been invited into the throne rooms that somehow he made a way. Heavenly worship focused on his holiness proclaims the extent to which God was willing to go to make that possible, to save us. He is holy and without sin, and we are sinful and without holiness. What fellowship has light with darkness, we reason, and Paul asked. As none, light and darkness have no fellowship, and yet God through his Son opened to us the door to heaven, making a way for us to be forgiven and to be able to dwell in his presence. That is the story of redemption, and that is covered in full in Revelation 5 that we'll look at next week. We'll finally see this, that the vision of worship in eternity encourages us by His authority 
over all things. So this scene of worship, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, they join together in this chorus, this final chorus of chapter 4, saying, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The emphasis on, on creation here is, is it's intentional, it's well-placed. If God created all, then God is sovereign over all. Agreed? If God created all, God is sovereign. He's in control of all. But when we fail to embrace God as creator and instead embrace prevailing theories of the day about origins, when we do that, we diminish God. I mean, either God made everything has sovereignty and therefore can save lost humanity, or he is none of those things. He is not creator, he is not sovereign, and he cannot save. It's all three, or it's none. There's no category for a God of salvation who has not also created all things and is not also in control of all things. The story of redemption started in eternity past and ends in eternity future. The constant throughout that timeline, which is the way we see all of this, the constant in, in all of this is God. There is no other constant. And that should encourage us today. God is sovereign. There's not a single thing that's going to happen anywhere on planet Earth today that is going to take God by surprise. Evil will not prevail, not in the short term and not in the long term. God is in full control. Sin and death have been defeated. We have to understand it in that way. To understand it in that way, you have to step outside of time to see that these things are all fully accomplished. With the book of Revelation, we're reading a history book of events that have all already taken place. And when you understand that, when you see God's authority, his sovereignty over all of it, again, it just helps us endure anything we would possibly have to go through in this life. Sin and death have been defeated. It's over. He's worthy of our worship and our devotion. Amen? The vision of worship in eternity should inspire and overwhelm us and humble us and encourage us. That's why God gave us this book. That's why we have the book of Revelation in our hands. Let me pray for us. We're going to sing to close our time. Father, I am very grateful that you have given us the revelation of yourself. Thank you for the entirety of the word of God, but the way you concluded it with the book of Revelation is such an encouragement to us. Thank you, Father, for these words of life that you've given. And Father, I pray for everyone who has, has heard this message today, 
whether here in the room or on the live stream or on demand, God, I, I pray that you would be encouraging those who already know you and have the forgiveness of sins. God, give them everything they need to endure through every trial. But Father, I pray for those who have not yet given their life to Christ, who don't yet have this hope but have heard this message. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convince them of the truths that they've heard in these moments, that they would see the brokenness of the world around us, that they would see, Father, the sinfulness of their own life, their own inability to answer any of these questions. God, I pray that today the light would come on and they would come to the realization that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Father, thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for your love and your grace and your mercy. And Father, thank you for your holiness hope that we have of eternity. We pray these things in Christ's name.